This is Geek Gab with your host, Brian and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, June 18th, 2016, episode 58, Battle of the Iron Mans. But before we start that, Brian, how was your week? That good, huh? I'm afraid either we have technical difficulties or Brian has stepped away from the mic. So I will break with tradition and tell you exactly how good my week was. Last week on the show, we had a brief discussion of bad movies that I had seen that for some reason, and one witty person suggested trauma, Movies that I had seen, bad movies that I had seen that I couldn't remember. And so, after some helpful suggestions from friends on Twitter, I have now finally recalled what it was that these bad movies were. These bad movies surprisingly enough, shockingly enough, were all three of them, and there were three of them, <laughs> all three of them were zombie movies. In ascending order of badness, the least bad was Dead Rising Watchtower, the movie sort of semi-loosely based on Dead Rising 3. Not a bad movie. Well, no, that's not true. It is a bad movie, but it wasn't a terrible movie. It wasn't a movie so painful it made blood drip from my eyeballs. Um, it had, of course, the vast array of weird weapons that you would expect from a Dead Rising movie. It had that medicine, the Zombrex, and problems with that, and the U.S. military and bombings and so on and so forth. It also had the president from several seasons of 24 in it. I mean, it had good actors in it. It had one of the nuns from Once Upon a Time in it. The nuns who were secretly fairies when they were in the fairy world, but are now nuns now that they're in the dreary real world. So that was the least bad of the movies. Second least bad was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Now I remarked to Brian at one point, we have confirmed that Brian is having a few small technical difficulties. Hopefully we'll get those sorted out real quick. We confirmed with Brian uh, I mentioned to Brian that *Crime, Prejudice, and Zombies, would only way it could be a good movie was if they took everything from the book, took the vague general outline, and threw it away and did something pretty much mostly original, which is what they did, but even so, it wasn't a very good movie. I'm a big fan of zombie movies. 
obviously I've watched three terrible zombie movies in the last two weeks. You know I'm a fan of bad zombie movies. Or even of good zombie movies. But Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I watched it once. High production values. Lena, uh, Lena Headey is in it. I would not watch it again. Bad, bad, eh? Oh, there we go. We can hear you. Oh, good. Continue. Yeah, I suggested that he... I suggested a fix in the chat here. Yes, while I was talking, I was running tech support and typing at the same time, suggesting fixes. That's the kind of quality you get on the show, a talk show host who can run tech support and type suggestions while he's talking at the same time. Anyone couldn't think as slow as you if he tried. <laughs> the third movie, and the worst, was, and the funny thing about this, the hilarious thing about this, is that it exists in two different names. I saw it under one name on Netflix, whereas the world knows it by a better name. The name that the world knows it by is Navy Seals versus Zombies. And yes, I have watched that movie all the way through beginning to end. And it was awful. Oh, it was awful. It was terrible. But I still kind of enjoyed it. It wasn't painful. And I've seen some bad movies that were so bad, they were painful to watch. It was enjoyable in a dumb way. And as long as you were prepared to enjoy it in a dumb way, you could enjoy it. And I'd say the same thing for the other couple of movies. And, and, and the thing is, Dead Rising 3, what it had in it, that elevated above the other two movies was it had actual hysterically amusing characterization because in between the super serious plight of these people caught in this zombie outbreak, they have a news anchor interviewing Frank West, who was the protagonist of dead rising one. If you've ever played right. that game, he's a news photographer. And so in the lore of the movie, he's, of course, the first person to have survived the zombie outbreak. And so the news reporter is asking him stupid questions like, well, what would you tell people if they were caught with their family in the zombie outbreak? And so Frank tells her things like, kill the old people first. Go after grandma first. She's old. She's slow. She's weak. Kill her first. Kill the kids second, and by that time, go after the adults. It's hilarious. And the thing is, this news reporter keeps on getting more and more offended and is almost swearing at him by the end of the movie, but he's always right. He's the biggest jerk, but he's always right. And he made the movie watchable for me because it was amusing enough to keep watching for the scenes with Frank West in them. The other scenes weren't so terrible, I couldn't sit through them, but Frank West made the movie barely worth watching. So, you can see that. That was my week. How was your? That was my week, was recovering lost memories, recovering the suppressed memories of the bad movies from last week. How was your week, Brian? Oh, man. My week was just a blur of writing. Just been 
I'm going to write the manuscript, getting some work done. Working on the third novel in your um, psychotropic Roger Zelazny-esque science fictionally fantasy-tastic Pirates Meet Hell Meet Doom series. Yes. That's it, yes. That's all you can say. You can't say no. You mangled that description completely. Well, I can't because you didn't. I'd, I'd be lying. <laughs> Yay me! Okay, so we're looking forward to the third book in his series coming out. If you haven't checked out his series... <laughs> See, this is why Brian is a co-host on this show, is he never has to pimp his books on the show. He has me to do it for him. And you're better at it, so go ahead. <laughs> if you want to check out the series, there are links to it in the description to this video. Or if you're checking out the podcast, downloading it later, go to the lyrics tab. Because that's the only text field long enough to take it. Sorry, I would put it in the quote-unquote comments tab, but the comments tab is, for whatever reason, really restricted, so we had to stick it in lyrics. So go into iTunes, Command-I to get information, and click on lyrics. And if you're not, in, if you're not using iTunes, if you're using some other lesser program, uh, I don't know what to tell you. If you can access lyrics, do. If you can't, well, come to YouTube. Um, is period gd uh, slash geek gab and then uh, the links will be there under the in the description of pretty much every single video that brian's been in okay the name of this episode is battle of the iron mans you want to explain what that title means brian well it means that um we don't understand grammar because I think the plural of man is men. But it's not the plural of man. And it's iron isn't really correct either, because as he explains in the movie, it's a gold titanium alloy, so fails all around. It's not the plural of man, though. Mm -hmm. It's the plural of the title Iron Man. And because there are two Iron Man movies, it is Iron Man's, the plural of two Iron Man being title, not men who would be people. Is that how you do that? Because honestly, I always wondered, but I was afraid to ask. So, so there you go. Professional Campbell nominated author learning something new from Daddy well, Warpig every day. I, I will forewarn you. That is how I do it. <laughs> I like how you do it. So, but what is the actual content of the show about? Well... Since um, we just kind of discussed this at the last minute, I'm going to make it up, or at least well, you, uh, take a stab at it, and say that. Well, I do because I'm I'm dictating it now, but no, I, I believe it has to do with a comment I made on the show a couple of weeks ago about uh, which Iron Man movie is the best. Oh, no, that, no, no. Uh, no. Fine, I'll do the introduction here. Let me do the introduction here. Thank you. Last week on the show, Brian committed rank heresy against one of the best movies in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, and indeed one of the best superhero movies ever made. That is Iron Man, the original Iron Man, that launched the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, Iron Man, starring Robert Downey Jr., fresh off his one-year prison term for cocaine, Brian committed rank heresy by suggesting the obviously inferior Iron Man 2 
was in point of fact the superior movie. Well, I didn't commit heresy because heresy is error and I committed no error. And then elaborated at length upon his heresy on his blog. Now, I have done Brian the respect due him by having read his blog post, and I shall do you, the audience, the respect of allowing Brian to make his case fully before I present why I believe he is mistaken. So please, uh, compare and contrast Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2 and explain why you think Iron Man 2 was a superior movie. Okay. Oh, and I will I'll say this to the audience. In addition to reading Brian's column on his blog, yesterday I watched back-to-back -back Iron Man and Iron Man 2 just to prepare for the show. Good. I was wondering if you were going to do that. I did that, too, in preparation for my essay. In fact, I watched all three. And let me just warn the audience who's listening that uh, since this is an in-depth analysis of the movies, I will be making no provision to avoid spoilers. And honestly, if you haven't seen at least one and two yet, welcome back from Mars. And two, go watch them because they're, they're both good. And... If anything we say will dissuade you from wasting any time or money on Iron Man 3, it'll be a public service. So with uh, the necessaries out of the way, I will proceed. So first of all, let me point out that this isn't which Iron Man movie I prefer. I like one and two about equally. It depends on what date is and what mood I'm in. Um, I kind of vacillate between preferring one or the other subjectively. No, I'm analyzing the movies in terms of the art and craft. Filmmaking and an art is a work performed up to an objective standard. So again, this analysis was undertaken somewhat contrary to my own inclinations, which is to rate one and two about equally. Examining it in, in terms of storytelling craft there is a very clear superior film and I will lay out my case for so let's begin with looking at the, the character of Iron Man and Tony Stark okay Betty Warpig is right prior to Iron Man 2008 no one not even hardcore comic fans cared about Iron Man he was at best a leftover jingoistic you know, a kind of saber-rattling character from the Cold War, basically. He was an alcoholic. He was, after the Demon of the Bottle storyline, but he was originally created by, like, Lee and Ditko, I believe, to show how, you know, American and capitalistic progress will triumph over communism. So he's an anti-commie character. Like, even to a greater extent than Captain America was, because uh, he started as more of an anti-Nazi, pro-patriotic character. Now, Iron Man was always, you know, superior science is, is the answer. Big men with screwdrivers, you know, so more, more Campbellian. Now, after the fall of the Iron Curtain in the Berlin Wall, that milieu became less relevant. So, yeah, they had to deconstruct the character. They did the Demon in the Bottle storyline, the Armor Wars, various 
reimaginings of Tony becoming like a Silicon Valley mogul and inventing a browser through a Stark Solutions brand. Just couldn't really figure out what, what to do with him and how to appeal to people. And John Favreau, and to a greater extent, Robert Downey Jr. solved that problem. They resurrected this D-list character and put him on top of the world where well, he's really stayed ever since. Let me, let me point something out real quick. Um, the reason why Marvel only has control of the Avengers characters is because in 1998 they were going through bankruptcy and they sold off the rights to all their other characters pretty much in perpetuity. As long as the companies they sold off rights to make a movie every couple of years, they will remain. They will retain those rights forever. So the X-Men got sold off to Fox. Sony got control of Spider-Man and his associated characters and so on and so forth. So quite literally... What Marvel was left with when they went to make their own movies were characters that they couldn't sell to anyone else. These were, when Marvel started their cinematic universe, literally the bottom of the barrel as far as everyone was concerned in making movies. These were the leftovers, the dregs, what was left. Captain America, Thor, all of the Avengers, these were the characters nobody wanted because nobody thought you can make good movies from these characters. Absolutely. I, I didn't know that, but that makes total sense because people forget that when Iron Man 1 was in production, it was considered a risk. It was a risk about on a par with Guardians of the Galaxy, where when Guardians was announced, WTF, because they're like, Iron Man, he's not Batman, who's that? So... Is Marvel crazy? Guardians of the Galaxy? Are you nuts? That could suck so bad. They've got a talking raccoon! Yeah, same thing with, with Iron Man. And like you said, that was largely justified, those doubts. And it really took Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, uh, as, as Bradford said in the, the chat here, they cast real-life Tony Stark type as Tony Stark. I mean, I think we agree that we can't imagine anyone else playing the character now. Because when Robert Downey Jr. says, I am Iron Man at the end, he's not really acting. I mean, let's be honest. So it was a perfect matchup of star and character. Now, uh, again, as has been established, memories have gotten a little fuzzy from the far distant year of 2008. Okay. And since then, the MCU has grown and expanded and covered a lot of territory and brought some new talent to the table. So one of the things that I noticed going back and watching Iron Man 1 and 2 is they're both very flawed. They both have deep and intrinsic structural flaws. So I'm not going to say that either one is a great movie. I mean, yes, in terms of what the first one achieved, it had a big impact. But in terms of a work of art, eh, there's, there's a lot better. Because first of all, it's an origin story. Not only is it an origin story, it's the same patented paint-by-numbers origin story that we have now been subjected to again and again and again in Ant-Man, most conspicuously, and what looks to be in the upcoming Doctor Strange. You know, arrogant, um, intellectual, irresponsible type character gets a taste of his own medicine and has to learn humility and responsibility from it. Okay? So that aside, the pacing... Classic stories, though. Yes, it is, but... in the three classic stories Robert Heinlein listed is A Man Learns a Lesson. Yeah, that, that's good. I think it's called uh, like anamnesis. It's the lesson that Oedipus learns. So yeah, it's, everything goes back to Greek 
tragedy or, or if not that Shakespeare. Okay. That's not, not what I'm talking about. It's not just the point where it's a trope. It's the point where it's getting cliched and it is handled well in Iron Man one, and it, but it and doesn't hold up as well. The movie just doesn't hold up as well com compared to other MCU movies. Cause keep in mind, it's the first, they hadn't figured out the formula yet. They were still kind of feeling their way out. And also the script was largely improvised. People don't understand that Iron Man one is like if Christopher guest who did, you know, a mighty one and this is spinal tap did a superhero movie because they had a rough outline, but in both one and two, they were changing the script during shooting on the set. And you can tell that there is a point at which uh, pepper pot says to Tony, well, if you're going to start all this up again and there is, right. she's referring to him being Iron Man. The problem is in the movie, nothing has stopped. There isn't anything that he stopped to be started up again. The line kind of stands out as being, um, it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. It's not yes. like she made him promise to not be Iron Man anymore, and then he chose to start up again in reaction to some other event. Right. The performances, because I got a bunch of Oscar winners and nominees, they managed to fake it till they make it. The performances largely distract you on first viewing from the holes, and there are plot holes in Iron Man 1 you could drive a truck through. The biggest... Elephant in the room is what's Albert Einstein's motivation? We never know. They're confirmed to do anything he did in the movie. None. There's no reason you could say that, oh, well, you know, he found out that Tony was taking the company in a different direction away from arms dealing, but no, he ordered the hit on him before that. And he even admits Tony's a golden goose. I'm not as good as him. He's an irreplaceable asset. So there's no reason for him to kill Tony. Tony is still basically leaving the running of the business totally to Obadiah and running off with Vegas showgirls and Monte Carlo and just drawing a trust fund. There is no reason for Stain to want him killed. And that brings me to the crux of my argument. This is my major point, which is okay. One thing that Iron Man slash Tony Stark has it sets him apart from the current crop of A-list superheroes is he doesn't really have a secret identity. And I don't just mean that his identity is public. You know, the I am Iron Man line. It's that without the armor, Tony Stark is a superhero. He has a superhuman intellect. You know, he can build an next generation miniaturized power source in a cave out of a box of scraps. That's not normal. So he's, he's got a post-human intellect. He is superhuman wherever he goes, whatever he does. Well, he operates in two spheres in the boardroom as Tony Stark industrialist and businessman. And after his accident on the battlefield as the armored Avenger Iron Man. Now, to have a successful story, what drives a story? It is a protagonist and antagonist, a goal the antagonist wants that the, or the protagonist wants that the antagonist stands in the way of, and the conflict that results. So to have the most successful, like the optimal Iron Man story, you need two villains. You need a villain who's a match for Tony Stark in the business arena, and you need a villain who's a match for Iron Man in the superhero arena. And if one of those is lacking, it is an incomplete story. Iron Man 1 covers the first one very well. Obadiah Stane is great at backstabbing Tony and playing to his weaknesses, playing behind his back, locking him out, selling his weapons to bad guys without his knowledge. That works well. It's when he gets in his own suit and just goes crazy and decides to rip up, rip up you know, freeways and downtown Los Angeles 
that the wheels come off because nothing in his character background or motivation explains that. It is the definition of ham-fisted. Now, in Iron Man 2... I, I want to I yeah, answer your comment because I think it'd be easier for the audience to understand if I answer that at this point. I think you have missed Obadiah Stane's very powerful and present, indeed omnipresent motivation. And to present this motivation, I'm going to go back to Dr. Faust, the medieval play. And the line from the play is, if I can quote this correctly, I am envy because I cannot read. I wish to see all books burned. And the seeds of Obadiah Stane's envy are laid in the very first scene after the combat scene at the beginning of the movie. When they're doing Tony's biography in a series of bold statements from an announcer followed uh, come with along with a series of images from covers of newspapers he says and then a titan returns or something similar and it shows the one man who had taken over control of the company for four years after howard stark died standing back diminished small behind a huge Tony Stark on the front cover of the magazine and he's turned a little bit halfway and he's looking at Tony out of the corner of his eye and that posture that image of Tony literally overshadowing Obadiah Stane he's built this company for four years he came in after Howard Stark died He's kept the company successful for four years, and this snot-nosed little brat who just turned 21 comes in, gets handed the reins of the company, and does it better than him. Introduces new weapons and does it better than him. Is fantastically successful with women. So successful with women that he doesn't even have to hit on a woman. He doesn't even have to have any lines. He just has to say... I'd be prepared to lose a couple of hours with you and unbelievably gorgeous, supermodel gorgeous reporters, hard-nosed reporters will jump into bed with him. He's okay. constantly surrounded by the best that the world has. And there's, he's better than Obadiah Stane at, ev at everything. Pride. I will grant Sure. I'm speaking here in the biblical sense. Pride is not concerned with how much you personally have, but the fact that other people have more than you. As long as someone else has more than you, you are dissatisfied. And that envy eats at you, and envy is such that even if you are diminished, you are willing to strike out at that other person. And the phrase is, cut off your nose to spite your face. Right, absolutely. Envy is the most wretched sin because it's the only one that gives you no pleasure. It's just all negative. And Obadiah Stane, his entire motivation in the entire movie is he is jealous, he is envious, he hates Tony because he wants to be Tony, and he will never be Tony. And so even if it hurts him financially, even if it um, exposes him to dangerous and stupid things, he chooses to take actions that are otherwise irrational, and just to hurt Tony, just to get rid of Tony. Now, 
I will freely concede that they went over the top with the battle at the end. That isn't necessarily, that even by the standards of envy prodding you to do irrational things, that that is more irrational than could you know reasonably be explained. But at the same time, it's a comic book movie. I can excuse that. Well, I will grant all of that. Um, I, I believe you're correct. However, I don't think it is excusable, at least in terms of comparing it to the second movie, because the second movie handles all of those things better. Because, yes, again, we're treated to, at the end, after watching you know this, this mastermind, you know, this, this salieri to Tony Stark's Mozart, right? Maneuver behind him and order hits on him, and very cleverly. And then, in the end, when he gets in Ironmonger armor and they duke it out, it is the standard issue at the time be a climatic fight scene between two guys are just going to pound on each other. It, it's very similar to the Hulk versus Abomination fight. That well, See, at the time, he knows he's been caught. He knows that Pepper Potts has stolen all his files. He knows that people are coming for him. And so he's really, at that point, all he wants to do, he can't salvage his life. He can't salvage his business. Right. He just right, wants right. to kill Tony before the government catches up with him. Right, and I'm not, that's true. I'm not talking about the motivation. I'm talking about the execution the fight choreography is bad. Photography is managed to be frenetic, you know, shaky cam and, and difficult to follow, while also boring at the same time. Because not a lot ever really gets accomplished in the fight. And two, my main point is the Ironmonger, no Stain, is not Tony's equal in the superhero arena because they purposefully have to handicap Tony with the original lower capacity arc reactor and wound him first in order to make the fight last longer than 10 seconds. It's been established that full power Tony's got a tiny missile that can destroy an M1A1 Abrams tank with one hit. Okay. Which again leads also into the pacing problems and, and plot holes, but it's no, just... I'll disagree with that because I think it's perfectly apt for a character who is cunning to be so cunning that he steals Tony's power source to power his army when he can't replace it. And Tony has to fall upon a backup that he would have thrown out. And he is... Well, again, is he cunning or is he so blinded by envy that it's making him stupid? You, you get one. You can pick one of those and maintain the integrity of the narrative. But... Right. You can be blinded by envy and be cunning. That's how you succeed with your envy is you're cunning. Well, he didn't succeed with envy. <laughs> so... And again, it was because of his pride. I mean, I totally agree with the, the satanic I mean, diabolical pride that is Obadiah Stane's undoing. Not, not to pull the Shakespeare card, but I'm going to pull the Shakespeare card. Let's go back to Othello. I mean... Pound of Flesh? Yeah. No, Othello. The, no, Merchant uh, of Venice is Pound of Flesh. Iago. Iago Desdemona, yes. Thank you for reminding me. The, the most evil villain Shakespeare ever wrote mm. who is utterly consumed with envy because the more, because Othello has things that he will never have, and yet the entire play is about how he cunningly sets up Othello to destroy himself. How he cunningly plays on the weaknesses of Othello so that Othello ends up in his passion and rage, killing the very thing he loves. Now, I will grant that Iago was more cunning and knew Othello better than Obadiah knows Tony. I will grant that. On the other hand, they were making a superhero movie, not a Shakespearean tragedy. No, your characters of Othello is correct. 
Yeah. Uh, this is a classic. Consumed with envy can be cunning. That's that's where great villains come from. And I'm not again. I'm not saying that Obadiah Stane is as great a villain as Iago. I recognize that that you know casts Obadiah Stane in a lesser light, and that's fine. But he can be cunning. Yeah, also, keep in mind though that when Obadiah stole the arc reactor, his the most clearly portrayed uh, interpretation of his actions isn't well. I'm going to steal this arc reactor to weaken you, so that when you eventually come there, I'm in armor and fight me. You'll be less. It, you won't you won't be up to snuff. It was I'm just going to kill you because he yeah. didn't know about the second backup one that Pepper had framed. Right, and so it was a failed assassination attempt. Yeah, he he wanted to kill Tony. He thought he was killing Tony. Um, I mean that it's it's like a good plot is like a duel. It's like a cinematic duel. Yes, you have uh, character A does something. Character B responds. Character A does something back. Character B responds. And the purpose of uh, Chekhov's guns and that backup arc reactor, that old arc reactor, has, is, has a twofold purpose. I mean, you're writing a script. That's the, that you have to do that when you're writing a movie script. The first purpose is to set up a moment of tenderness between Pepper Potts and Tony um, when she gives him this gift, proof that Tony Stark has a heart. But the second purpose is to be there... Um, to allow Tony to have something that will keep him in the game long enough to destroy Ironmonger and to show, and I, I would argue that it even, in a way, sets up the theme that gets played out in Iron Man 2 with oh, War Machine to show that Tony really can't do everything by himself because he has blind spots. Well, tell you what, that is a great segue. So let's get into Iron Man 2 because we're a little over time already, but I, I don't mind if you don't. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> and that's one of the things I like about Iron Man 2 is it fulfills on all the promises made in the first one, especially the explicit promise that Colonel James Rhodes will return as War Machine when he looks at the Mark II armor, contemplates getting it for a second, then decides, well, no, I got to go clear there for Tony, but next time, baby. And there is a next time, and it's glorious. So, Iron Man 2, just in terms of the faults I found with Iron Man 1. First of all, sins that it too commits. Um, they did continue with the improvised dialogue, which does slow scenes down. It does open plot holes. That's still there. Two, also, the pacing. The middle acts of both of these movies, and this applies to Iron Man 1 as well, drag there are there are some odd editing choices. There are scenes that don't really need to be there, considering scenes that you know they cut. For example, most of Ivan Vanko's background ended up on the cutting room floor, which is a bizarre editing choice. But there are also redundant scenes in Iron Man 1, you know, like the one you mentioned with Pepper saying, you know, you're going back to this again. So there are pacing issues in both of them. Okay, so I have... I place the score even on those counts. But where two excels over the first one is you have multiple villains now. And in most superhero movies, that's where they start to bog down and get too cluttered, and it's an Achilles heel. Not here. Yes, it does get somewhat cluttered because you've got limited screen time and the editing's wonky. But let's look at who the main 
antagonist of Iron Man 1 is, it's clearly Obadiah Stane. I mean, that's, that's obvious. He's the one placing obstacles in the way of what Tony wants. Now, in Iron Man 2, who's the main antagonist? The heart. Now, it's got to be concrete. Now, there are three villains in Iron Man 2. Correct. The third villain is the poisoning, the palladium that is poisoning him, his heart. That's, that's not one of them. That is a complication but it doesn't have agency. It is not exerting... I mean, it's definitely an obstacle. So really you could say that Tony, because he did it to himself, so you could say that's man against himself. So actually there might be four then. But or, or it could be man against nature if you wanted to sure. closet it like that. But You could, yeah. So that's definitely an important aspect. It's an important complication. It ratchets up the dramatic tension, which again was something missing from the first one. But they, well, the main what the, villain... That's let's the limited power served as in the last scene. Right, let's put it this way. That's a good point. But they introduce it uh, sooner build up here. But anyway, what is it that Tony wants? What is his goal in Iron Man 2? His main goal? Make a case. Okay, I'll go ahead. Tony's main goal is to retain his liberty. It's to retain control of the Iron Man armor to continue using it as he sees fit under his own recognizance and to retain control of Stark Enterprises and keep using oh, sorry, Stark Industries rather as he sees fit. Now, Whiplash and Justin Hammer do provide obstacles, although really, much like the Palladium poisoning, they intensify and aggravate existing obstacles. Who is it that is directly trying to restrict Tony's freedom in these regards? Who's threatening to take away the Iron Man armor and to exert oversights over Stark Industries. The government. Yes, the government is the main antagonist. Well, here's the problem with the with that. Uh, let me finish. Sorry, I interrupted. Let me. I'll let you finish. No, I was at a stopping point. Please go ahead. Um, here's the problem with that: as the government being the thematic villain, time after time in the movie, Tony proves inadvertently. I don't know if the if the screenwriters mm -hmm. meant this. Tony proves that the senator was right, that he shouldn't have control, unlike the first movie, which is the story of a man taking responsibility for himself and acting responsibly. Um, time after time in the second movie, he's acting stupidly irresponsible. Um, and right. if, if the theme of the movie is supposed to be, I have privatized world peace, uh, or I have whatever the exact line is, yes, having him it. act so over-the-top stupid that is even more irresponsible than irresponsible Tony was in the beginning of the first movie um, really undercut against it because all you're doing is showing that the guy is right. And even at the end of the movie, it is, you know, the theme is, well, yeah, Tony shouldn't have sole control over this technology, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada. I disagree, and I, I think that we're framing the plot differently. The The way that, like, the, the plot that I see in Iron Man 2, and this, this does have been multiple uh, interpretations, but here's the breakdown as I saw it according to my analysis. That Tony Stark has successfully privatized world peace. He is more effective at keeping his own weapons out of the hands of the bad guys than the U.S. government and the U.N. are. And again, out of envy and jealousy and a thirst for control, the government 
personified by Gary Shandling, Senator Stern, attempts to seize this technology, this power for themselves, which as Tony points out, that since the Iron Man armor is an advanced prosthesis to treat his heart condition, he and the technology are one, and therefore the government attempt to take control of it is indentured servitude. So there is a very fundamental, uh, almost libertarian case. It's very Randian. Very Randian that we really won't see again until uh, one of the high points of the MCU, which is Winter Soldier and Civil War. So I think that Iron Man 2, better than any movie before it, sets up the later MCU, which is what the producers, it's what Kevin Feige said he wanted to achieve with Iron Man 2. So in terms of Razor Fist's a definition of a successful movie being one that accomplishes its stated goal, Iron Man 2 passes that criterion, whether you agree with the ham-fisted studio interference or not. And there's a lot of it I disagree with. It laid if, the groundwork for what came later. If I could say this, yeah. I think that that theme would have been better served not by having Tony go crazy in the couple of scenes in which he did specifically in the party scene that I'm thinking of, but him, him actually going galt with his technology, him saying, mm. fine, if you're going to, you know, them attacking his company, uh, attacking his profits, whatever, shutting him down so he can't operate, fine. So he takes all his technology, he drops in a hole, the threat of Whiplash comes up because Whiplash is searching for Tony, now Tony's gone. And Whiplash is causing all this trouble, making it clear he's looking for Tony and then the government has to realize, oh, we messed up. We actually do need Iron Man. Go search for Iron Man. And Iron Man comes out and, you know, teams up with War Machine to go take on Whiplash. That first says, yeah, even the first says, well, screw you. Go sleep in the bed you've made. I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not helping. <laughs> that would have been a much more satisfying movie in my mind. It would have made more thematic sense to carry that storyline through. Well, you're you're not incorrect. I would love to see that. However, I'm going to critique the movie they made instead of the movie I wish they'd made, and I, I wish they would have hired you to write it. But finding it you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm it is. I'm the plot they, they put out in the sense of here's a better way that they could have carried those same things through versus what they actually did. Agreed. Agreed. But let, let's continue. So that's, that's the main conflict. Tony wants to keep control of his autonomy, his technology, and his business, despite government interference. So that sets up the main conflict. Okay, now aggravating that conflict, as you said correctly, is the palladium poisoning. That is what leads to his crisis, because he basically goes on a bucket list tear, because he thinks, I'm dying, I have a terminal condition, and it is in line with his character, torpedoes, I'm going to go out, you know, I'm going to, Pull a donut before the, early, the the pearly gates and, you know, slide it across the finish line backwards on fire. That's what I'm going to do. So the palladium poisoning applies pressure that increases the tension because what I think you've identified as betraying the theme is actually what writers would call the low point. And it is Tony not only doing it to himself, but then Whiplash and Justin Hammer. And again, unlike in the first one, we now have a credible threat in the business sphere. That's Hammer, who is also jealous of Tony, but doesn't want to destroy him for it. But like a tag-along little brother, wants Tony's approval. Hey, you're going to be annoyed at me, but I'm going to do this again. Okay. This is if you're going to keep the poisoning theme in there. What might have been a better low point in the going galt 
he goes gulp. He recognizes the need to come back to stop whiplash, but he's so sick and crippled because of the poisoning that he literally can't get out of the cot. And wow. now he is in a cave somewhere, calling it back to the first movie with his um, all this technology there hidden from the government under tarps, um, desperately trying to solve this because he needs to uh, get well again so we can put on the armor again so we can go stop Whiplash from doing whatever it is he's doing. Yeah, that's great. And you know what? If they hadn't had the necessity of paying for Avengers on the installment plan, right, and setting up the MCU to come, we might have had room for that. So, yeah, again, it's it's not a perfect movie. Neither one nor two are perfect. They're very early in the MCU. They're still finding their sea legs with the, the whole property. I, I agree. That would be better. But I'm not trying to argue that Iron Man 2 is the old, it's the perfect Iron Man movie. It's just better than part one. Because again, we've got worthy villains that do give Tony run for his money in the business and personal sphere, because this also harms his relationship with Pepper severely. And two, in a superhero identity. Which, you know, courtesy of Whiplash who goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tony, not only at full power, but recently having got a power upgrade in the form of the vibranium reactor he invents. Now, so, go here's ahead. the thing. Um, Whiplash, when he first shows up, uh, has whips that are weak, and Tony, in a moment of taunting him, tells him how to fix them and make them strong. Later, he comes back with those same whips, and they're very, very strong. That is, I would argue, a perfect arc for Tony Stark. Nice that time. <laughs> art is very well done. That's perfect, uh, uh, dramatically perfect. It's dramatic irony. Now, one uh, aside I will go on and, uh, again, conceded, I, I agree, is right, in terms of Ivan Vanko, most fans' complaints about him are that he's the cipher. We don't know enough about him to really care about him. And I would say that that's not entirely true because there are really three elements, okay, that determine character likability, whether or not we will root for a protagonist or an antagonist or whatever the case may be. And Let me ask you a question. Does this, is this directly related to your argument about why it's a good movie? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. So I'll, uh, I will truncate it. Okay. So it's not that we have to... Knowing a character's full biography is not a necessary condition of caring about that character's goals. Okay. There are three things to do. One is if the character has just a, a likable, jovial, amenable personality. Okay, so there's personality. Whiplash doesn't really have that. Okay, then there's competence. You know, if a character is just good at something, even if he's a total jerk, we like watching him do what he does. Now, Whiplash, great physicist, you know, is able to replicate Tony's arc reactor. He succeeds where Stain and even Stark Industries failed. So that establishes his villain cred right there. And then how proactive the character is. How hard does the character try to achieve his goals? Well, Whiplash tries really hard. So in terms of two of the three sliders, and you really don't want to slide all three up because that's when you get a Mary Sue. But in terms of competence and proactivity, he gets the job done. He's great. He fulfills those criteria. Let me describe why I think... Iron Man 2 fails as a, as a movie. Sure. It's because Iron Man 1 had an extra year 
to cook. My problems with Iron Man 2 can basically be described as death by a thousand cuts. It isn't that any one of the problems I have with Iron Man 2 is necessarily lethal. It's that added one upon each other through the whole movie, it is absolutely distracting from all of the good solid stuff in there. So let, let me take a step back and give one example. Okay. Ivan Benko, the actor playing him, went through a dark time in his life, much like Robert Downey Jr. did, Mickey Rourke, um, and came out of that dark time in his life with a series of strong performances, beginning with The Wrestler, um, I think in 2007, uh, and followed up with a bit role in The Expendables, um, and these were strong, powerful performances. He did just an incredible job. If you haven't seen The Wrestler, please, you know, go do it. It's, a, it's an excellent movie. He gives a, an incredible performance. And he gives an incredible performance in this movie, and I think he's well cast for what they wanted Whiplash to be. Now, I don't know what Whiplash is in the comics, but they wanted a Russian thug criminal as Whiplash. And Mickey Rourke is great cast as that. You can believe that he's a man who's been in prison. You can believe that he's tough. He has these prison tats all over him, and he looks tough. And then on top of him, he's got this black hair with this distracting, silly-looking white streaks through it that are done up in a man bun. Now... You're going to say, well, that's, that's tiny, that's small, that doesn't matter. No, actually, I will argue, one, death by a thousand cuts means that each little individual thing is small. So this is kind of small. But two, movies are a visual medium. Hmm. In real life, bullets, when they impact something, do not leave sparks. But we put them in some movies because you need to see where the bullets hit. You can immediately see them and immediately understand them. You take shortcuts visually in movies that don't correlate with reality so that the audience can immediately see and understand what's going on without having to be told through exposition. So what's going on in a scene visually matters quite a lot. And the man bun, or top notch, or whatever it's supposed to be, and the long streaks in his hair didn't, to me, fit with the rest of the character, and they were really distracting. All he needed was a Doctor Who scarf to complete the look. In a, they looked silly. In a they took away from his yeah. toughness. They took away from his sense of menace. And I know why they did it. Because when he has his whips out, they're long and they're flashy and they're white. And so they're reflecting the vision, the, the, they're kind of a superhero uniform. They're reflecting the image of the whips in his hair. And they did that also with Tony Stark. If you look at how his uh, beard is cut, if you look at the lines in which his goatee are cut in, they're the exact same shape as the angular lines of the Stark logo. Wow. Oh. Tony Stark has. <laughs> did, you haven't noticed that, did you? I've looked. It's like a lava lamp. I can't not look at his goatee, and I did notice that it's a perfect triangle. It's right? the exact it's, same shape as the Stark logo. Uh, yeah, you're right. Thinking about it, you're right. I noticed that the very first time I watched the movie back in 2007. So, 
I know why they did it. it it's, and the reason why that's important, why I'm calling back Tony Stark, is because it's the same director, Jean Favreau, and he's trying the same trick with Whiplash to give him a visual link between his mundane identity and his superhero identity. Sadly, or this time it didn't work. This time it didn't work. So that's one tiny cut. And I'm not trying to overemphasize it, and I'm not trying to say that would ruin the movie, because honestly, Tony Stark's beard was a little bit annoying. Um, it was a little bit too obvious, but I could ignore it and enjoy the movie otherwise. It's just that there are so many things that happened in the movie that didn't make sense. In addition to that, there were small, tiny things that kept on piling up on top of each other. The whole palladium poisoning Tony Stark thing just came out of nowhere. There was no groundwork laid for it in the first movie. And in the second movie, it's already advanced to the point where Tony is blood testing himself for it. They didn't start with it, with Tony discovering it or anything like that. It's just bam, right at the beginning of the movie. Oh, Tony has blood toxicity. And you're like, what the hell is this? It doesn't make sense that palladium would be poisoning him. It doesn't make sense that he wouldn't have known that palladium would poison Tony Stark didn't know when he was making a miniaturized dark reactor to stick in a massive hole in his chest he didn't know that it would poison him well not to score an own goal but looking at the trivia for the movie it's even worse than that because in real life palladium will not cause heavy metal poisoning <laughs> i didn't think so i didn't check it out but i was yeah. under the impression that palladium that is, is used because it is precisely a non-reactive metal that that is correct yeah um, which is fine, actually. I could forgive that because it's comic book physics. I could actually have overlooked that, but it's just one more little thing. And then we learned that Howard Stark knew about the arc reactor technology, knew that it could be miniaturized, and knew somehow that it would poison people and that someone would put an arc reactor in their body and get poisoned and that lithium dye whatever eight would be a temporarily ameliorative and he gave that formula to shield because he knew that someday someone might be poisoned by it and he knew that you could only cure it with this one specific element not molecule element that he couldn't synthesize but he could take this element and lay it out in the plan of this vast public park so that the buildings and the walkways would make up the chemical atomic structure of this element. No! No! And then when you holographically reflect the part, you, you can take all this stuff away and somehow it bends over to this triangular-shaped glowing thing and it just, no! Okay. Are you okay? <laughs> take a minute, take a drink. There are probably about a score of things like that that are nonsensical, even in terms of comic book physics, piled on top of each other. Now, I realize in my work doing uh, for role-playing games that sometimes you can over-explain to where people will just accept stuff and accept stuff until you feel the need to give them an explanation, but your explanation is so bad, they'll suddenly start questioning stuff they would have just accepted if you kept your big mouth shut. That's a tip for you writers, by the way. Mm -hmm. Don't over-explain. Sometimes people will just accept stuff you write without the need for you to explain it, and if you explain it, 
then they may stop accepting it because now you're forcing them to examine something they wouldn't have thought twice about otherwise. So actually a really good tip. Keep that in mind. It is. You can also under-explain things too, though. Like I'm, yeah. I'm uh, the rare reverse case where I've been told that uh, even by no less than Larry Korea, it's like that I come from that school where filling in background information is for wusses. So um, caveat emptor. So it just, it, it, the plot, that whole plot didn't make sense. Why it was happening didn't make sense. And I wish that had not been in the movie because it distracted from some really good stuff that was in the movie. Um, in fact, I, I really wish that entire poisoning subplot hadn't been in the movie because it was so incongruous. It made so little sense and it was completely unnecessary to the movie. You could have just been fine with Hammer, the government, and Ivan Vanko. And every time I have to sit through the movie, those irritations pile up one upon each other. And I agree with you. There is a lot of good stuff in this movie. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm not saying this is a bad movie. It's certainly much better than three. On that, we both agree. Three isn't even a movie. It's a practical joke at the audience's expense. Um, they even extended the credits out to double length, quick grant, with like joke names and stuff. And because they knew people were, were waiting, they're expecting for the monk's reward. And then at Robert Downey Jr.'s insistence, they gave a BS monk's reward or instead of a preview of guardians of the galaxy, we, we get, Oh, it's a frame narrative. He's been talking to the Hulk. Wow. It's an oceans 11 level con job or oceans 12 oceans 12. Rather. Um, and, and it's just these, I need to breathe these uh, logical inconsistencies that don't link up one with another completely undermine the narrative of the movie to where the other narrative that does actually make sense, because there is another narrative going on parallel to this that does make sense. Mm -hmm. Ivan Venko's revenge does actually make sense. How he carries it out does make sense. It kind of is presented in a little bit, some of the visuals they chose for it weren't necessarily the best mm -hmm. in, a, in small instances. I'm not saying in big instances, in small instances, but that whole revenge plot was done very well if they'd gotten rid of the silly stuff it would have been it would have been um a much much better movie again um i don't argue with anything you said because again i'm trying to prove this is a perfect movie just that it's better than one and i, I gotta tell you one has just as many problems there's a lot of and then style pacing where okay so tony's giving a press conference and then he's talking to pepper and then he's going out to like they kind of hand wave it with telekinesis where he happens to be watching TV and see something directly pertaining to the plot. It's very facile, like very easy mode. It's like, okay. And then he's going to go shoot these terrorists. And then he's tinkering with the suit. And then there's a training montage. And then he goes to a party where he finds out that stains backstabbing him. It's just very Michael Bay choppy type of storytelling. And that's in part two as well. But the thing is, a lot of those blockages may be lazy writing. Well, it wasn't written. That's the, the problem. They're at least coherent. If someone saw that there was a big party going on in their name, and if they had an ego, and if the reporter was almost taunting them, saying, he's not expected to show up because we hear he's, you know, gone Howard Hughes, in a bunker somewhere letting his fingernails grow out to 20 feet, 
he he might be moved to go to that party just to prove them wrong. That makes sense on a human level. I just pictured that. That'd be great. Struggling to pick up his uh, green juice glass. Yeah, it makes sense on a human level. You can completely understand that. Whereas the linkages it, in the whole poisoning subplot didn't make sense on any right. level. It it does, but at the same time, the movie grinds to a halt right at that point because he's just designed the Mark III armor. And he's told drivers to fabricate. So you're like, all right, finally going to get to see the Mark III armor. Nope, he's going to go to a boring cocktail party and him and Pepper can talk about their relationship. <sighs> okay. And that's that's the thing about part one. It teases a lot. It makes a lot of promises and eventually gets around to them. Contemplates its navel way too much. That coupled with an origin story, just it's dull. Sorry, Iron Man 1 is dull. Part two has way too much garbage thrown on. It's it's like one of those paintings in the original Batman, the 1989 Batman, when the Joker goes in to improve the paintings and they take more paint and throw it on top of it. It's just painted all paint on top of paint. You can't see whatever masterpiece may have been underneath. Okay, we are out of time though. Uh, last words. Okay, yeah. Again, just going to reiterate. Both Iron Man 1 and 2, kind of uh, shaded by the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia, but they both have their structural flaws, but in terms of having two villains that can give Tony Stark a run for his money in both area of his, areas of his life, plus a lot of goods, like, there's a small good thing for every bad thing you name, like giving Phil Coulson something to do in some witty dialogue instead of just being a faceless stooge. Having Nick Fury in there, being Sam Jackson, having fun, introducing Black Widow. And setting up for the later MCU and things are being explored later, it's the Superior Iron Man movie. Uh, yeah, and uh, the whole thing with Phil Coulson uh, just introduces another layer of stupidity. If you leave, we will shut you down so you can't leave. And then he leaves and nothing happens. In fact, he comes back and Phil says, oh, I heard you leave. And you're like, you said something, what happened, but nothing happened. What the hell? He clear. He clearly knew he was going to talk to Fury. That, that was absolutely... No, because what he did was he ran to the office and talked with Pepper Potts and then picks up this big uh, diorama of the parts he brings at home. Which diorama, by the way, had parts that he could pull off. And so by sticking it in his car and driving down the ocean freeway at 90 miles an hour, he had parts that would fly off. Ridiculous. I don't know. I got the impression that Coulson knew Tony was about to go make a breakthrough. Absolutely ridiculous. Okay. We've, uh, we are out of time, even by our standards of being over time this week. So yeah. thanks for tuning in, folks. This is Geek Gab, Saturday, June 18, 2015. You uh, can watch us live on YouTube probably every once a week or so. Or you can subscribe to the podcast. The link to the podcast feed is helpfully labeled podcast feed in the description of this video. Or if you're getting this through MP3, through SoundCloud or wherever, if you go to the lyrics tab in iTunes, you will also have all that information there. Thanks for tuning in. We, uh, our, our good friend and co-host John is gone this week, which is why he wasn't here. He is out with his wife having a good time, and so we scorn him. We scorn him greatly. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Yes. We are tuning out for today, but don't worry. We will be back.